we are past peak hype for craft beer and peak passion for craft beer. to the first Brews News Week of 2023, recorded today, Thursday, 12 January. I'm your host, Sabrina Kunz, and I'm joined by Matt Kierkegaard. Hello. And Ian Watson. Hello. Happy New Year, fellow co-hosts. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. Hope, hope you had a good holiday. Anyone have a good beer over Christmas? I had lots of good beers over Christmas. Not too many, though. I was saying to Matt the other day that I actually... Um, I was drinking some classics over Christmas. I actually felt a little bit sort of almost naughty in my beer buying. Uh, we always make sure there's uh, plenty of our favourites over Christmas to go through. Naturally, uh, uh, with myself and Rocky, there's always plenty of Saison um, in the fridge and other Belgian treats. But, um, yeah, we treat ourselves. Tis the Saison. Tis the Saison, exactly. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> and, uh, but we, we make sure we always have some of our favourites there to enjoy uh, over that period. Dear listeners, we're mixing things up a little bit um, just to give Matt a little bit of breathing room in his schedule. Um, I'm going to help take the load from him. So I speak a lot anyway, and unfortunately that means I might speak a little bit more. So moving on to the news, um, we've had some news over the last couple of weeks. Some of the stories are a couple of weeks old now that came in over Christmas um, and some newer ones that have just landed today. So the first story that came in, I think it was Day before Christmas, 23rd of December, Little Creatures to stay at original Fremantle site. Lion's Little Creatures has signed a new deal securing its future at 40 Muse Road, Fremantle. Last year, the brewery announced it would move next door uh, and commence a $30 million redevelopment project, which was set to have a multi-level reimagined hospitality venue. However, the company has now confirmed it will remain at its original location due to an opportunity to purchase the lease. Uh, and the story goes on to talk about, you know, its 22-year history on the site and its commitment to Fremantle. And all in all, it was just a nice news story in the lead into Christmas. Yeah, more of a case of an interesting uh, minor development, uh, but not a major impact for, for anyone. Great to see that it's still at the original site, even though it was only going to be moving next door. But that is nice to think that it'll still be in, in exactly the same spot. Yeah, it's got one of those historical things, doesn't it? You know, historical part of, of the zeitgeist of craft beer in Australia. Absolutely. You know, I, I think, um, you know, Little Creatures original brew pub was massively influential. You know, I talk about Little Creatures being the start of craft beer movement in, in, in Australia. Um, they didn't, you know, the, the way that they ran that venue, um, you can trace the DNA of every brew pub in Australia back through Little Creatures um, and the venue. You know, it's beer can be made anywhere, you know, and they're, they're successfully making beer Little Creatures in Geelong. You could make, you know, the beer very, very similarly um, with similar values just about anywhere. But there is still that element of us as suggestible human beings that knowing that the original site, um, you know, that's why Heritage sells and everyone comes up with a great brand story to make the beer more appealing to us. And it's just, yeah, as you said, it's nice that Little Creatures is staying there. It doesn't mean anything in the greater scheme of things. It's not that Lion was closing it down because the bean counters had taken over. It was just leasing and availability. But at the end of the day, it's still nicer that it's there, I guess. Yeah. Liquidators expect return for sample brew creditors. This one's a little bit complicated and Matt uh, wrote this article, so I might give a high-level summary. 
but the liquidator of Sample Brew Limited entered administration in May 2019 has advised unsecured creditors that they can expect a return of 23 cents in the dollar following the liquidation of the company. The Melbourne-based contract brewing business went into administration with debts initially estimated to be $300,000. However, in a report to creditors last December, the liquidator said that after investigations, he was aware of debts totaling more than a million dollars. These included unsecured creditors, company directors, secured creditors, and outstanding priority creditors, uh, such as employees. Uh, There's a bit of a background in the story, um, but the other component that leapt out was that Sample Brew had crowdfunded in late 2017. They began an expression of interest on the virtual platform. The crowdfund was celebrated at the time as the first brewery to raise capital on the new mechanism. At the time of crowdfunding, um, Sample Brew told the Australian it had sales of $2.3 million uh, for 2016 and was well on track to turn over more than $4 million in 2017. Uh, But in a liquidator's report for September 2019, the report indicated the business had traded at a loss since at least March 2017, which suggests that at the time of crowdfunding, uh, it was not trading as it had suggested. Um, so, Matt, you did all the digging on this one. Yeah, this was something, and I do have to say that we got the liquidators report because Brews News is a creditor um, of Sample Brew, um, just for advertising, I think it was $200, um, but that means that we get sent the uh, liquidators uh, report. Um, the interesting thing was, you know, it, look, I actually thought Sample Brew for a contract brand had a very strong brand. Like it was a very, it was a little bit different. It was very strong compared to a lot of them. But it's a hard game. When you read the creditors' report, um, the business said that I think competition, low margins, and not achieving enough sales were the reason for it failed. You're kind of going, well, duh, on one one hand. But of course, the thing that I find, and not to go back to my usual um, drum, but the thing that I find very interesting was that's not the story that they were telling at the time that they were launching an equity crowdfund. They were talking about all of the, the industry is growing, here is what all of the international, the IWSR or whatever the whatever report they um, quoted, the industry, this is, it's a $3 billion industry, it's a $6 billion industry, and you know, telling the same story that every other equity crowdfunder tells. And yet the reality is, they weren't getting an, enough of it, they weren't making enough, um, and, for each year that they operated, they were losing money, but yet they were being held up um, as, uh, to some extent, a poster child of equity crowdfunding. I believe Birchall had launched the Expressions of Interest campaign even before equity crowdfunding was legalized. It was in the final stages. Um, Not exactly sure, but certainly it was very soon after equity crowdfunding became legal. So that was back in 2017. In 2019, when they went into receivership, I contacted Birchall and uh, was told that, you know, it, it just never went ahead because at that stage, companies had to convert to public companies um, to access equity crowdfunding, and they decided not to do that. That since changed, and that was the reason. But there was huge expressions of interest. They expected more than $2 million um, in, in invested. And to me, like, th- this is the problem with... Um, you know, 
we are now starting to see the early businesses that crowdfunded um, or sought to crowdfund or were talking about growth um, early on. Um, and Endeavour is another one that we've written about recently. They did crowdfund. They were the first brewery. We're starting to see that, you know, they didn't get the growth that they were promising in these glossy crowdfund documents. Um, making beer is a tough business. Well, in this one, what's interesting is it, um, and we've talked about this before, but so in, in the crowdfunds, you're supposed to be crowdfunding for a thing that is to take place in the future. We need $2 million to improve, to buy more equipment, to expand, to grow. This very much sounds like trading at a loss. Um, we need $2 million because we're in the hole. And so we're actually trying to get free money to backfill. We're, we're not trying to get $2 million to, to, to build a big future. We're trying to get $2 million to survive, right? I mean, you read this and, and it's interesting. The language is quite specific, right? And this is... I think the, the the challenge that you see with sort of um, testing the veracity of anything, they may well have $2.3 million in turnover. That doesn't mean that they're profitable, right? Mm. Those are two different things. And so they are yep. correct. They could go out and say, this is what our turnover is. But if you're spending more than you earn, you, you, you're unprofitable. So where's the return? And so I just think it, it speaks to this accountability question uh, and the question of who in the process of doing these things is actually responsible for verifying, I guess, that it's the riskiness of an investment. So for, for, the, for that, I mean that, you know, if you're trading in another circumstance, you go to a broker, you, you look online, you can get a risk assessment of, of, of the um, public asset in most cases or the private asset through an advisor. In this case, you're sort of getting half the information and because it looks like there's a platform that's engaged in between that's doing some checks, it almost gives you this security that it's a medium to low risk asset. I don't know. The one reality check I've had to have, um, you know, speaking to people who are entrepreneurial is I, 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 any business has to back itself that it's going to grow. You know, like if, 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 if you're a contract brand, you, you want to grow and a business that fails and a business that succeeds are going to look at a certain point of time exactly the same. The point is they didn't get the growth and, you know, maybe other businesses would have, you know, we've seen better beer, um, you know, for example, has gone on and grown significantly. Um, so it, it can happen. And if you start a business, you've got to hope or expect that, that that's the case. So I think the problem here is that we are still seeing businesses, you know, you can almost pull out the same promise in every equity crowdfunding that we this money will help us grow you know the the, the industry is this big we can capture a, a share of it the, the truth is capturing a share of it isn't as easy as it sounds and having the money won't um and so yeah so I mean, it's, it's the, the challenge of businesses the, the 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 last thing that stood out for me is and i've been reading quite a number of liquidator reports recently for a variety of reasons almost all of them the liquidator has made a referral to asic um, and I think that might have been the case here. Um, I believe that the report said that there may have been insolvent trading um, or certainly a, a recommendation was made to ASIC. ASIC declined to look into it. 
that is the theme that every liquidators report that I've read has said. We've made a recommendation about former directors or we've made these things. ASIC has not stepped in. So if the company, and this one was unusual and that the company did have enough assets, it wasn't so badly run that there wasn't assets. There, there is a return to um, creditors um, of, 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 of a percentage of, you know, I think it's 23 cents on the dollar. That's after a very significant, I think, $200,000 of accounting costs for the administrator liquidator costs. So there was clearly money there. The brand was sold for $350,000. The brand and the assets were sold. So there was some value in, in, in the brand. So it's, it's not a bad, you know, it's not the worst case or anything like that. It's just a business that didn't succeed. But yet there was a recommendation made against the directors and ASIC just goes, no, we're not going to look into it. And that's, there, there is some that I'm looking into at the moment that are much worse cases that ASIC's not looking into. And yet when we look at equity crowdfunding, as we've talked about, the platforms say, we just have to do due diligence. You know, here is our thing. We just can't mislead. But you've got no recourse against them. The businesses, when they fail, have no money. Um, and so the, the, the liquidators say, well, there's no money to fund action against the directors. And if they do, they've got no money anyway to, to, to reclaim. And yet the corporate watchdog who you think would have the resources to look into these things, and we're told is the corporate watchdog for equity crowdfunding, just goes too small, not in the public interest for us to waste our time doing it. So functionally... Equity crowdfunding is, in my view, completely unregulated. Yep. Like so many white-collar activities. Mm. Yeah, this, this this is one of those ones. It goes back to what we were saying in the podcast uh, before Christmas there. When we were talking about, I think it was the final one for, for the year, and that closing period to be able to action on um, contributing to an equity crowdfund is very little time for you to do um, any due diligence uh, on it. If you were going to... Investors straight up, um, they would want to look through, or I would want to look through, and I would want to see what is this dollars for this raise going to be used for. Okay, we're going to buy a new brew house. Why are you going to buy a new brew house? Because we're currently at capacity. Okay, that's actionable. Or um, we need a new sales strategy and we need some cash flow to get us through the sales strategy because of X, Y, and Z. It's going to be happening six months from now that we can capitalize on if we have this um if we have this uh, a liquid capital at the moment, okay, there's a strategy and it's something that can be looked through and you can apply some logic to it to see whether that is a worthwhile risk. And every investment is a risk. It's all gambling. Um, we're just using another term for it, but it is essentially a form of gambling. Uh, but when you've got such a uh, limited time frame to make a decision and often very limited uh, information at hand, it's a, risky, it's a risky move. But then perhaps that's why people might invest Two hundred or five hundred dollars, and think that that's less that they've got to lose than to be investing. If you went straight up to a more conventional investment, someone might be investing hundreds of thousands or, or millions of dollars straight up into it. And so people might just look at it and go, you know what? It's um, uh, uh, a greater risk because we can't um, action our investigation more, but we're we're outlaying less to start with. Um, yeah. But th- this this wasn't a case of of crowdfunding anyway. It was a potential crowdfund one. Uh, not one that actually was a crowdfunding in the end. Yeah. 
And I think the thing that was interesting to me that um, the other line that jumped out, which was sort of a bit of an aside, but it was the 2019 liquidators report said that attributed the failures of its business to increased competition in the craft beer industry, low margins on product and insufficient sales. That was in 20, let's talk about the time frame, 2017, 2018, with the liquidators report in 2019. Look at where the market is now. Uh, increased competition, low margins and insufficient sales. And I'm like, and yet we're at way more breweries than we were at that time for a contract brand. So when you just... I don't think we're going to come to that in other stories talking about skewmageddon. So, yeah, so this is where I just sort of, I pulled that out and I was like, gosh, you know, if this isn't a warning to little breweries, big breweries, medium breweries to really understand your financial position and prepare, um, you know, this is a great warning size because as you noted, Matt, you know, not a terribly run business, just not the most successful business, just not surviving. If we actually look, if I'm reading those figures right there, they had 500,000 litres of sales and $2.3 million. So if we just do some simple maths on that, a 50-litre keg is selling for $230 a keg, which is pretty bloody cheap. Um, so we want to look at uh, uh, then all your cost of goods, all your cost of general doing business in there. And so it is something that as a business, you do have to be really aware of what your actual cost of goods are, what your actual costs of doing business are, what your actual overheads are, fixed and variable, and be able to look at um, what you really need to be charging for your beer in order to uh, be have have a profitable um, business and not just look at what your competition is doing. And it could be a warning about discounting. Discounting, when you apply, there was a business book I read about 20 years ago um, and it went through the basic maths. And this is pretty simple, direct stuff. I didn't believe it at first and then I just put it down on paper. Uh, when you apply, um, I'm going to get these numbers wrong here, so please someone do it and check up on me. It, it was something like if you put a 10% discount on your product, you could effectively have to sell twice the amount of product in order to make that discount back. So anytime you put a reduction in your price, you have to think of and you have to do the maths to look at what you actually need to uh, increase sales by in order to just A, maintain your uh, profit coming in and B, uh, in order to grow, which if you're doing a discount, you're wanting to be looking at as a way to uh, to grow your product. So you're going to have to look at what that increase and then see whether that is a realistic target to be able to um, hit. Are you realistically going to be able to generate an extra X amount of sales if you pull a Y discount on, on that product? If you can't, don't do it. Because when there's increased competition, uh, price changes... Uh, and I'm using the most generous words there, price changes, uh, discounting, undercutting would be some of the other language, starts to become more prevalent um, and then it becomes a race to the bottom for the industry. And so that's definitely, you know, I think that's a good caution. But it has a flow-on effect in that the company, often the companies that cut the deepest are the ones that are most desperate. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a Hail Mary pass in a way. But the loss of sales to businesses that would otherwise be viable having to try and compete 
makes businesses can render unviable other potentially more viable players. That's right. I, the, the one thing I do just want to say um, that while we're talking about the business in liquidation, the brands do live on and the brands are completely unrelated these days to the business that's in liquidation. So, you yes. know, a couple of people have seen the sample beer um, because, again, the brand was quite strong. Um, and whilst the business wasn't able to make a go of it, um, it went to East Ninth, which has, I- interestingly, East Ninth, which used to have Dos Blocos and um, they had a Lick Pier. Um, yep. Um, they've uh, voluntarily, you know, so, so they then on sold the brands to the current owners, uh, which is Crush, um, which is a wine distributor and they obviously have a beer offering as part of their platform now and uh, the business uh, well um, East Ninth has gone into voluntary liquidation you know, they've wound the business down um, uh, after 10 years and uh, I'm not quite sure yet what's happened to the uh, Dos Blocus and other brands but they've been sold on as well so hmm. um, absolutely no relationship between the existing brands and the business that's in receivership that we're talking about. Right well on something um, on the next article which I guess is I don't want to say related but when times are tough business-wise um, research recent a survey explores mental health in a small business Research published by Treasury, uh, Federal Australian Federal Treasury, found high levels of mental ill health within small business se- sector, suggesting a need for tailored mental health initiatives. One in five of those surveyed had been diagnosed with a mental health condition by a doctor or health professional. In some industries, such as manufacturing, retail, tra- retail trade, accommodation and food services, it was one in three. Most of the small business owners who responded said they had not used any of the support services available. Um, 50% of all small business owners said that they would not consider turning to a doctor or mental health professional. And others stated barriers, including the cost of lack of time and services. Um, And so essentially what this this survey was highlighting was, I guess, the need for small business owners to be aware of um, mental health services that are out there. And when we're talking about how tough it gets to run a small business in a competitive environment, um, you know, the, the industry has for some time been talking about mental health pressures and I'm sure that they're only going to get, can get harder in this environment. So it was a good sort of reminder um, to access the services and services that are out there and both at the federal government level and then, you know, at the state and local government level, there are some services available for small business owners. You know, I think it's a really, it's great to see the government doing this sort of as general as it is, but it's still information and support um, and raising an, an issue. As a small business owner myself, I know that I'm highly liable for any of my staff, um, you know, and 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 their and their well being, but ultimately, <laughs> I'm the only one that's responsible for my own well being, which uh, you know it, it often comes second. Um, but that's something I think, Matt, that um, as individuals, if we're employees, we have to look out for each other, and we have to look out for those that are employing us as well. Um, we all have mm. to look out for each other. If we're a team, um, it's a team. Our our boss is also our team member and our teammate, and if we're wanting them to look after us we want to be able to look after them uh, back to. And it's a general case of humanity. We need to look out for each other. We need to do what we can to support each other. Well said. 
So uh, our next um, article that uh, in the last couple of weeks was ABAC Eyes Advertising Placements. Recent ABAC adjudications have highlighted issues around advertising placement and raised discussions over the definition of marketing communication. And as our um, journalist Vivian Topalovich pointed out, there were quite a number of adjudications over the period. Uh, she had sort of recalled maybe the most she'd seen in one in one. Um, sitting, I suppose. And so she'd highlighted in the article four distinct um, cases that we thought were most relevant. And obviously, we encourage everybody in the industry to be really aware of all of those adjudications because they function like court precedent. So you should really be aware of all of them. Um, And there were sort of four that she called out. But the one that um, jumped out to me that I thought would be pretty relevant for everyone or was interesting anyway was that Endeavour's BWS group was the subject of a complaint over the placement on of its products on an Uber on the Uber Eats website. A complainant argued that the display alcohol products on the website appealed to minors. Surely it can't be legal for Uber Eats to just list alongside Allen's lollies and similar alcoholic beverages like those sold at BWS and similar. The complaint read. Endeavour responded to the complaint, arguing that the website should not be considered marketing comms as it displays images and names of products rather than promotes them. The Uber Eats platform has an 18 plus policy. Account holders must be over the age of 18. Um, Anyone who can view a product has to be logged in. Uber Eats' response to the complaint elaborated, noting that logged in users may choose to have the alcohol products excluded, so that's available. And before reaching its decision, ABAC panel said that although it was a complicated and technical decision, it highlighted the involving landscape of alcohol marketing. The panel rejected Uber Eats and Endeavour's arguments that the website was not marketing communication and noted that the websites are a core aspect of marketing material as it ultimately promotes purchasing the product through imagery and copy. However, the panel concluded that the website does not breach the ABAC code or its placements rules, stating that the likely audience of the website is over 75% adults and not aimed at minors. And so really interesting because, uh, you know, I think, frankly, ABAC were bang on. It's this this evolving landscape of how people consume information and material online. Um, And I just thought it was one that, you know, as you're starting to think about offerings, partnerships, collabs beyond the traditional, um, really needing to be clear. And, and and Uber Eats had an over 18 policy, had lockdown, had exclusions, and it was still considered to be, you know, marketing and communication. So, so let me get this. Have I got this right, Sabrina, in that essentially it was the fact that they were listed on this website as a product was deemed to be advertising? Yep was wow. deemed to fall within the marketing, the ABAC code, because it was marketing communication. That, that is quite a, a significant um, uh, finding or adjudication because yeah. that then really does potentially restrict the uh, many aspects of, of potential online sale for, for alcohol and uh, potentially does it restrict it to essentially alcohol or over-18 product-only sales sites. So that's exactly where I went, Ian, was like, you know, it, it has to be essentially your website needs to be locked down to over 18 when you log in, although Uber Eats was. 
so then the complainant's argument about, okay, well, I'm going to go fill my shopping basket with uh, a six-pack of double IPA and then some Allen's lollies. Well, because Allen's lollies appear next in the line for any reason whatsoever, that would be considered pro- promoting to minors. ABAC said it didn't breach those codes because 75% of the audience was over um, the age because Uber Eats had done the work to lock it down to essentially an 18-plus audience. Um but it really starts to sort of say anywhere alcohol is for sale, even just the fact that you can see it, see an image of the product and a price, that constitutes advertising and marketing. So, wow. yeah. Yeah, I think that's really, I mean, it, it just shows how careful you need to be. The, the one that leapt out to me is that the good news is that beer advent calendars are not in breach of uh, yeah. Uh, or as of themselves are not problematic, um, which again, um, given how big they are for a number of retailers, number of breweries, is a big thing. And we have seen, you know, I think for chocolates and advent calendars that were geared towards children, um, you know, there was a potential that it could easily have been deemed as being something that probably shouldn't have been the province of uh, alcohol marketing. Um, so uh, it was good. Uh, but in the same one, and, and I probably can't, can't comment too much, but the the board did note that Bridge Road, who was the subject of this complaint, it wasn't a complaint about um, advent calendars generally, um, declined to respond. So I'm not sure whether they just didn't respond or whether they actively declined to respond to the complaint, which, you know, I'd have to mirror if it was a decision not to respond. Um, you know, somebody commented in the Facebook group, um, or, sorry, not on the Facebook group, on the Facebook post for, for Brews News that, you know, why would they, you know, it's ABAC jumping to, you know, piling shit on brewers or something like that, um, you know, and they they applauded Bridge Road for not um, responding. And the, the, the easy thing is that, well, in this case, it was to argue, it was really arguing the case for all advent calendars, not just Bridge Roads. But I always come back to the alternative to the current industry-developed code that is designed to reflect reasonable community expectations around alcohol marketing. No one is ever going to scrap a code for alcohol marketing to give brewers the right to decide what they want to do. This is a voluntary code, but if industry or if the government comes to the conclusion that the voluntary code isn't working, then they will create a code and it will be staffed by people that actively dislike alcohol. And, you know, it's a it, it's not beyond the realms of possibility, given that they are asking for a complete ban of alcohol advertising and plain packaging for alcohol that is sold. Um, and, it, you know, we could find a situation where beer becomes like cigarettes. And yes, it's onerous. Yes, sometimes craft breweries don't agree with the results, but it is just a sign of respect for the body and it's also a sign that the industry takes its obligation seriously, that breweries, you know, treat it with respect and, and actually respond to, to, to complaints. Yeah, and we, and we don't know the details, but I think this comment um, actually from ABAC in the adjudication, the company's refusal to properly cooperate with the complaints process speaks poorly of its commitment to corporate responsibility. And I think at the crux of... Um, 
you know, the challenge around ABAC and we've spoken before about who helps fund it and who doesn't. And, you know, again, um, there's issues around that um, because the whole of industry benefits, but only the, the majority of large players pay in. Um, that if government considers that there is a poor commitment to corporate responsibility around advertising and marketing amongst the whole of the beer industry, then they would be more likely to take steps to more highly regulate. So, you know, we want to, as a collective and individually, consistently demonstrate a commitment to corporate responsibility all the time, I think. Whilst, honestly, Bridge Road did not have an obligation to uh, participate with that because if not a signatory to ABAC, you don't have to. Um, But as far as looking at from the, the, um, well, not really from the outside, being in my position, but I think it's well within our interest to to work in as best as we can uh, with with, with ABAC. Um, And because, yes, the, the alternative, better the devil you know. The one thing I wanted to say is that, you know, we haven't reached... The situation yet where we do have plain packaging um, for our beer and that's fantastic because it means that we can have great designs and turn our cans from plain billboards to the big billboard that sells your beer and the people that can do that are rallying labels stickers and packaging providing a new voice to designers and artists with a very public canvas that we want to retain and present some terrific artworks and some tongue-in-cheek quips it's brilliant. Seriously, to get all of your specs right on your bottle or can and to make it look at its very best at all times, call the guys at Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging on 1300 852 235 or email sales at rallingsprint.com.au to see how they can help make your brand sing. I was going to sing that, but I won't. That would probably cost some sales. Um, but you can find out more about Rallings in our uh, business directory or in the show notes. And so as Matt likes to say, folks, um, that's the news you need to know for the week. <laughs> and so we're moving on to sort of some more um, interesting pieces, I would say. Uh, just a quick heads up that there's been two beers of conversations over the last uh, couple of weeks while you've been on holidays, uh, Red Hill Brewery and Beer Cartel. Uh, I was going to reference Beer Cartel um, earlier in our chat around um, crowdfunding and crowdraising. I thought it was a really interesting conversation and Beer Cartel, the guys, seem to have a really clear vision around what they were doing with the funds they've raised, where they're going next, what they're doing, how long they're going to use the rely on those funds to continue to grow. Uh, and I just thought in this uh, environment, it was it was really interesting to listen to sort of the changes on the retail side. Uh, so I've thrown in a little um, article slash segue uh, that builds together a couple of things from our listeners uh, and what's going on in the US. And so my question to our audience is, is Lawn Bowls Australia's answer to pickleball? Um, if you're not familiar with... <laughs> what, what is pickleball? Uh, just this week I was reading about pickle juice that can be added to beer, which sounds disgusting, but I haven't heard of pickleball. So uh, my next line in my pre-prepared show notes says, if you're not familiar with pickleball closely resembles tennis and badminton, 
The game play is played with small paddles on a small court, about the third the size of a tennis court, using a hard, lightweight ball that offers a reduced bounce. Until recently, the player base skewed towards older folks and was considered the domain of country clubs and retirement homes. But the sport's now making a play for the mainstream and it's garnering attention investment in the food and beverage space. Um, who are seeing it as an emerging cultural trend and the opportunity with the opportunity to get on the invest and get on the ground floor. The two largest breweries in the US have invested in pickleball, with Molson Coors' Vizzy Seltzer being announced as the official hard seltzer of the Professional Pickleball Association of the US, and Anheuser-Busch becoming the first Fortune 500 company to purchase a major league pickleball team. We love the accessibility of Pickleball and we think it's an amazing opportunity for us to gain relevance and excitement for our brands, head of Anheuser-Busch told CNBC. So last year after reporting on Your Mates and the new Bowls Club and on our great live stream with stats and comments, shout out to Zoe Ottaway, Ryan Walker of Brucha Libre uh, out of WA commented, was great hearing all the lawn bowls talk. It sounded like craft beer has gained the attention of bowls clubs in Australia. Brucha Libre Brewing Cohere in Perth has a beer and bowls event coming up for our one-year birthday. We have eight other local breweries coming along for the event and Dollar Bill spending, sending some goods over too. Since the event was launched, we've been approached from a number of other bowls clubs asking if we'd like to host events. Our beer and bowls event looks like it's becoming an annual, if not frequent, more frequent event can't get a better pairing than beer and lawn bowls. And so given this parallel between the explosion of pickleball, uh, that sounds very like it had a target audience alongside bowls, um, is the cultural revolution happening around bowls in Australia and are we going to see more beer and bowls collabs? So that's my takeaway. It's um, uh, maybe in some ways different. Pickable, interesting, I was just, uh, Rocky and I were just talking about it last night. Um, I asked her if she'd ever heard of it before. Um, she hadn't. The reason why I was asking is uh, her son is a incredibly good at tennis, and so I was wondering if he'd ever had a, a crack at it. Um, and I had only heard of it probably a few months beforehand when I heard about uh, some of the um, breweries in the US investing in it uh, and also, too, about some major major name actors and sports stars yep. investing yep. in pickleball teams. And it's like, what the hell is this? And then yep. I saw an article yesterday about a mum of two from the Gold Coast uh, who only recently took it up, uh, something being the first Australian, I think, to have been drafted in as a professional pickleball player in the, the US. I didn't read the article. I just read on the little synopsis thing. Um, and it just piqued, piqued my interest as to, what the hell was this? And uh, Rocky's comment back to me was, what the hell's pickleball and why is it called pickleball? And it's like, no idea, but it's it's something that's really taken off. However, in the comparison with it and bowls, um, pickleball from what I see doesn't seem to be, and what I imagine, doesn't seem to be something that people will take a few shots and then have a little sip of their, um, their, their seven-ounce glass of beer. Uh, whereas bowls does have that long, it's a long, gentle, slow game. And where, you know, in the old days, people would have a, a seven ounce of beer at either end. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily responsible, but it's probably, uh, more possible, uh, has a greater possibility to do that with, with, with a gentle game like lawn bowls than with something that's potentially a little bit more coordinated in, in pickleball. But, uh, certainly the, the, the and then that, then thinks the, 
Is this a sign of the ageing demographic of the beer market in Australia that uh, lawn bowls has now become something that we're like, you know what? Yeah, lawn bowls. Yeah, it sounds good now. <laughs> well, funnily enough, as we've been talking about this, I've been Googling um, and, you know, the, the insight that Google provides, you know, when you start, all I put in was pickleball. People also ask, is pickleball popular in Australia? Uh, it is the fastest growing, is one of the fastest growing sports in the United States, and it's now starting to grow in popularity in Australia. In Australia, millions have been invested into the Major League Pickleball over the last few years from the likes of big sporting stars, LeBron James, Naomi Osaka, and Nick Kyrgios. Um, but then also, as you go down, why is pickleball so popular? Do they play pickleball in Australia? Um, actually, what's the answer to that? Pickleball is an exciting new sport that has been played in Australia since 2017. Analysis in real time from Google, listeners. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, about 150 people play pickleball every month in South Australia. So not huge, but um, what is the average age for pickleball is one of the other suggested uh, answers. Pickleball's widening appeal, the average age is 38, an almost three-year decrease from 2020. Uh, means you meet people you may not hang out with otherwise, says Aaron McHugh, 70, author of Pickleball is Life, the complete guide to feeding your obsession. So what really grabbed my attention about this and why I thought there was this really nice um, tie back to, you know, a number of conversations that came up last year with bowls, with it, which is there's been a resurgence of interest in something that was historically considered only for a certain demographic, an older demographic, um, but it was also really focused on the social aspect of it. So it was really about having something to do. And you're right, Ian, pickleball is not the thing necessarily where they're drinking and uh, playing at the same time. Any listeners, I encourage you to listen to the most recent episode of uh, Brewbound podcast that has a really deep dive on uh, chicken and pickle. Um, but it it was about that people like to get together, do some sort of an activity, and then it's the sitting around and socialising over a beer. And often a lot of the venues have really uh, ha- have beer offerings. And so I thought, you know, we are seeing this need for uh, – and pickleball is also – um, courts are being set in locations where the courts were not being, tennis courts, other spaces weren't being used uh, because the community's preferences has changed and so the pickleball courts were being inserted and sort of re-enlivening places. And we've got these bowls clubs that are sort of all over Australia and need that reinvestment of community. And so I just thought, you know, is it is it a place for us to watch what's going to happen and hit this space? Absolutely, yeah. And, and you know, again, it's the evolution of, uh, of beer and yep. exciting. Can't wait. As our correspondent said, um, can't think of a better bit pairing, beer and lawn bowls. So on to our next, I want to call it below the fold, but other news. Um, are we entering a skewmageddon? Uh, Last week, the Wall Street Journal reported an article, the huge number of small breweries creates a beer glut. Some craft drinkers and the people who serve them wonder how many more microbreweries people are willing to try. And this is obviously in the US. Uh, There's been a great chat in the Radio Brews News Facebook group, um, which you can find just by searching uh, Facebook um, where Miro Bellini shared the phrase skewmageddon that he first heard in the US in 2017. This was an article that you spotted, Matt. 
Yeah, look, again, you know, hashtag confirmation bias potentially, but we did talk um, over Christmas and I was in a podcast late last year with uh, John Hole speaking to Melissa Cole and a number of American beer writers where it sounds really, really tough out there. And um, the thing about this is it's mainstream media, you know, like, like anything. It took a long time for craft beer to go from niche um, publications to be written about in the mainstream, which shows that, you know, a movement has progressed to a certain stage that it starts getting picked up by something like the Wall Street Journal. Um, and it, it, it's a serious uh, issue. And I think, um, you know, uh, one of the um, commentators in our Facebook group um, made the point, and it was a um, legitimate point to make uh, from Adzi, um, that they've been saying it since there were 6,000 breweries in the US. And that's very true. But, I, you know, what I'm hearing is that there probably were too many breweries for 6,000 in the US. And more breweries don't necessarily create more demand. And one of the things we've seen, I've just had a long conversation with John Hall, Hall um, that the US market has stopped talking about growth. They're not even talking about growth, they're talking about survival. So talking about the number of breweries that Australia can support or the US can support is just a moot point because the discussions around 6,000 breweries in the US were happening as there was that rising wave of enthusiasm for craft beer. You know, we were talking about what is craft beer that wave has moved past and with it the passion for things like who makes it you know what are the ingredients we'll come to 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 an ingredients discussion um, a little bit later but we are past peak hype for craft beer and peak passion for craft beer even if the audience for the market for craft beer is growing the businesses that are well placed to to be doing that are the big brewers who have the marketing budget because craft beer is becoming brand-based um, and brand is about marketing, not about passion. In 2022 and 2021, I was on a podcast, that the podcast I talked about, and at the end of 2021, um, the Beer Marketing Insights editor talked about we've gone past the rock star brewer or the hero brewer, you know, the Sam's, the, um, you know, Vinnie's, who once upon a time were the Madonnas of the, you know, they had one name. You knew who you were talking about when you said Sam or Garrett or Vinny. Brands don't rely on those people anymore because they're not household names amongst beer consumers. Um, the market has grown to the point that it's advertising spend um, and, you know, getting out into that broader, less engaged market is, is the real challenge. So, yeah, there, there was a lot in that. I don't. Yeah, there, I think it's. I just posted it because a lot of people who are planning breweries read our our site and are involved in the discussions. A lot of people that are making business decisions um, around expansion um, are making it. And uh, you know, it's a real. I, I I really get the sense that we're at a batten down the hatches time and make the most with what you've got and make your business as robust as you can, rather than go chasing increased market share because unless you really know where that's going to come from so yeah so that, that was just a long dump about that whole um the skew uh, you know skewmageddon which is a phrase i hadn't heard um but i've also heard uh um whales referred to a little bit this week which are the hard to find beers the white whales 
and uh, shelf turds. Shelf oh. turds is another. Um, which are the, the, the beers that yep. just don't sell? They just sit on the on the shelf. So they're you know, uh, actually there was a vine. I think it was Vine Pear or one of the magazines published the the new language of beer. Um, so we're we're seeing a whole lot of uh, new words thrown up uh, to describe craft beer. That's probably um, pretty similar to my conclusion, Matt. Um, it's probably time that a lot of businesses, instead of looking just to see what we can do to grow at all costs, is to just hunker down and make sure that your business is a profitable, sustainable business um, and that can capitalise on any opportunity to grow if and when that's there, but not putting all your effort just into trying to into into, into growing it there. Um, it reminds me, though, a little bit of a term, um, kind of a similar term, but kind of different from uh, from back around that time or just prior to when Miro mentions is um, kegstipation, uh, where venues were just wanting to, and this probably left to our, led to our scheme again, um, venues were just so wanting to get every product, that they'd have every product, but they couldn't move through it. And so there'd be all these kegs filling up the cold rooms of uh, beer bars, um, and often they'd only go on for a short while. The keg wouldn't be finished off and they'd be sitting in the cold room, half full keg, and they had to feel that they had to get the, the next one next one in. So the, the venues have become kegstipated, which has led to skewmageddon. <clears throat> We're going to have to adjust our bingo card, I think, Matt. <laughs> uh, and so on to the, our last little piece of um, other news. Is Cerveza emerging as the sexy lager for breweries? And I originally had had the question craft breweries, but then, of course, we started with the uh, regular contributor Daniel Ridd's post about Tinny of the Week in Perth. Uh, now.com was the little creatures Mexican cerveza so I didn't want to use the word craft uh, and as Daniel rightly pointed out you know there was quite a big discussion with Modus uh, in, in around mid-2020 around their cerveza uh, and Daniel Massey recalled in that chat also a long-time contributor, um, Australian Hotel and Brewery Cerveza from about 10 years ago and how it was ahead of its time um, and so as someone else can commented all credits to marketing for selling a cerveza this brewery or otherwise and playing on the bintang effect make your cash on something that the masses will go for because it's easy drinking with subtle flavor that's the thing like and that's what i come back to for the the market's not growing you know the, the beer market overall is shrinking and i and the challenging beers that created the excitement you know in the ibu war days where you know it was a challenge to see how hoppy a beer that you could drink um, that was always a very, very limited audience. There is a much bigger audience out there and craft brewers are starting to chase that, um, which, which again is all part of the, you know, my adoption of Ian's post-craft beer um, world. Because if you go back 10, 15 years, the discussions were all, what is craft beer? You know, and there was arguments had over, you know, it can't, you know, it doesn't use adjuncts, it's flavor forward. And Chaveza, you know, the, the, the Mexican lager, are designed to be very low flavor, very high, you know, often adjunct driven beers, um, which is, you know, once, you know, for, for, forget the Ryan Heitzkaboot, you know, the, the craft beer arguments, it just didn't fit in the, 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 the definition. But in doing so, it became uh, like a little walled garden for people that were part of the craft beer club and uh you know brewers have made the pra the pragmatic decision to chase beers um or to chase that broader end of the market um 
and you know it, it, it's great uh, I, I can remember the knots that brewers got tied themselves up in trying to you know justify making lagers you know <laughs> even when uh, big helga was launched by matilda bay which again an, an example of a insight that cub had well ahead of the the the, the market but they realized that you know well let's make a craft beer lager and it was a very good one but speaking to the brand people, it was almost there was always a note of an apology that we know that this isn't craft. We know, you know, but they anticipated that not every beer drinker wanted hops or sour. Some people just want a beer that tastes like beer. And everybody's doing it. Um, or in it this now. case, a beer that tastes like beer, salt, and lime. <laughs> well, that's that goes back into a little bit my definition of post craft. Matt, my use of it there is that if lager can't uh, be part of craft, well. I'm post-craft because um, it's all about just about beer. Uh, yeah, yeah there does seem to be a bit of interest around that. Uh, myself, I don't think it's the, the sexy new uh, lager. I think there's other ones there um, that will probably take that. But people are going to play around with with um, this avenue a little bit. My concern as a brewer doing it is that um, the leaders in this category, uh, the market leaders, are also some of the best value, most cheapest beers on the market. So if you're in a small brewery, uh, you're going to find it really bloody hard. You're probably going to be able to make a really bloody good one that I'll probably really enjoy drinking and probably a lot of other people will really enjoy drinking. Um, and they might like it because they're wanting to be part of craft, um, but they're wanting something very simple in its flavor and subtle, and that's fine. That's, that's great. But then are they after a while going to go, you know what? I can get Corona for uh, a hell of a lot cheaper. I'll just drink that and I'll still feel I'm – am I going to feel I'm part of it? Whereas there might be other subtle lagers um, that you might be able to get um, and might be able to help justify you a higher price point for because the um, uh, the market leaders of that category uh, have a slightly higher price point. So, um, you know, in, in rice, rice lagers or Japanese-style lagers um, – Asahi generally has a higher price premium over Corona. So I would think that would be something attractive. General Euro Lager um, has a higher price premium um, on, and cachet attached to it than Mexican-style lagers. So it does help you in getting that return there. There is That doesn't mean that someone can't do it and get uh, have a great product that they can, if they've got a really good marketing team and they're really clever around it, but they can't get that for but to me, that would just feel a little bit more dangerous path to go down. Um, I, I, I would feel a little bit more concerned in, in doing that. But, hey, if someone's making a great um, Mexican-style lager, I'd, I'd love to drink it. Funnily enough, you know, when you go back to the start of craft beer, that was always the challenge that was enunciated. And one of the arguments that brewers that started in the early 2000s, you know, we're making craft beer because we can't compete against the big brewers who can make lager much more cheaply. So we've got to make a beer that's different that we can charge more for. Um, as the market has broadened, consumers, you know, the, the, the big brewers can also make the craft beer cheaper, but it doesn't sell at volume. So this is a, the, the, the challenge for brewers that want to get into this is trying to lock more value into the same thing, um, you know, through, you know, niche offerings or, you know, or, or how they build their brand and how they sell it. Um, because you know there, there are a whole lot of examples of premium products that aren't significantly better than the cheaper mainstream ones, so long as you can tell that story. But that's um, you know that, that's a marketing challenge, not a brewing one. Oh, a- abs- absolutely, it is. Like I've, 
no doubt that there are many breweries out there that can make some bloody brilliant ones. Um, but um, then doing it at that at that price point, um, certainly no one can. Um, but if you can market it in the right way, but when you're going up against a product that is just so bloody cheap, um, that's that's really hard. Um, really, really, really hard. So I don't think it will be there. But hey, let's see me be wrong in 12 months' time. Uh, do the show, the season wrap up at the end of this year, and um, say, and the first thing that was wrong was Ian, first show of the year, talking about Mexican lagers. <laughs> I don't think you. I mean, I, 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 again, I don't think it, this is one of the ones. That I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. It's I, it's not ideas. It's execution, and I'm sure. With the good execution, breweries can make this work. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Speaking of breweries, um, we have a brewery of the week this week, uh, thanks to Bluestone Yeast. And Bluestone Yeast can supply pitches of yeast from one litre to 100 litres at greater than 2 billion cells per milliliter. Whether you are after a one-off pitch or you're looking for weekly, fortnightly or monthly deliveries of yeast, Bluestone Yeast has got you covered. You can reach out to them at info at bluestoneyeast.com.au or call Derek on 03-8518-3172 and talk all things yeast. And actually, I have the Brewery of the Week this week because I actually had some child-free days over New Year's and managed to get down to um, Earth Beer Co. in sort of in behind Kingscliff in northern New South Wales. And it's a beautiful regional venue. You kind of, it was absolutely teeming with rain and we had to kind of park down the hill in amongst some cordoned off avocado trees, kind of hike up in a little bit of mud. Uh, And I was with two um, women in their 60s and we got uh, tasting paddles. The staff were incredibly helpful and knowledgeable and nobody kind of side-eyed us for asking for the paddles. Um, They were lovely. It it promotes itself as being a family venue and certainly there were lots of children, dogs, families, Christmas parties. The beers were lovely. They had a nice variety Um, and all in all, it was just such a wonderful experience that it really reminded me about why I love the craft beer industry. And you couldn't pull out the beers from the venue and the experience. Um, it really was that sort of whole of offering. So if you get the chance to, um, you know, if you're making the trek to some of the bigger breweries on the Gold Coast or uh, northern New South Wales, um, make sure you get in Earth Beer Co. I'm sold. I haven't been down and uh, very much looking forward to doing it. I've heard great things about it. You're giving me the, the rare time that I have a little bit of FOMO because we were actually down that area over um, uh, over New Year's. We went down to Eltham on New Year's Day and I didn't get to get there. So, um, yeah, a bit of FOMO now. It was um, – I, I have missed it a few times and so this time I kind of planned a whole bunch of travel around making sure we could fit it in. So it was lovely. Um, so anything anybody wants to add as we wrap up? No, I'm good. I've loved being a passenger. Um, thank you for carrying me. That wraps up episode 401 of Brews News Week. Your hosts have been me, Sabrina Kunz, along with Matt Kierkegaard and Ian Watson. The show is produced by Vivian Topolovich and edited by Joe Helder. We thank Rallings Labels, Stickers and Packaging and Bluestone News for their support in making this episode possible. Thank you to all of you for your contributions by email, text, phone and in the Radio Brews News group. Uh, The conversations with you are what make this so interesting. 
Please rate and review the podcast on Apple or Spotify to help more folks in the brewing industry find out the show. Um, We'll chat with you all next week and we're out.